0: Cool fact,
1: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: I think that the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, and particularly the notion that all human beings have inherent human rights, that governments cannot grant or take away. I think that is the, the the ultimate natural state of a human being to want to live that way. But when we ourselves say, I don't believe in that anymore, and all I want is just for me and my family to be comfortable and screw everybody else, then maybe that becomes self-fulfilling.
1: I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 23rd, 2021. All across the world, citizens of liberal democracies are justifying their rejection of democratic norms and traditions as a protest against a cast of elite villains. It comes in different flavors around the world, but the underlying trend seems to be the same. While most observers are focusing on the impact of globalization or the activities of these very elites, Tom Nichols is placing responsibility somewhere else, the citizens themselves. Tom Nichols is professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and the author of The Death of Expertise, and, this week, the author of Our Own Worst Enemy The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. He's also a five time undefeated Jeopardy champion and has over half a million followers on Twitter, where he rages about everything from rock music to Indian food to national security. So we had a wide ranging conversation. We talked about democratic decline, its causes and effects, the tough process of looking in the mirror, and related issues from civil military affairs to the current Afghan crisis. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 23rd. Tom Nichols on Our Own Worst Enemy. Tom, with liberal democratic governments under assault, citizens and most observers seem to be focusing on the deprivations of globalization and the disconnected and self-serving elites as the core problems. But you place the blame somewhere else. Where and why?
2: I place the blame right on the citizens of the democracies themselves. Democracy is an act of will. Democracy exists because we want it to exist. And when we as citizens decide that um, we're just so aggrieved about everything that that we basically give up on democracy. Then you know we're really we really have to own our democratic decline. It, it, I think you know David when you when you open the question you said uh, how often people are now pointing at globalization and the elites and other explanations. I think that was truer a year or two ago, and I think one of the things that's been really striking is that the behavior of people in the democracies has put the lie to that. That in fact the people that are most dissatisfied are people who are not really
1: mm-hmm. suffering that much right
2: i mean this is not a revolt of the poor and desp- dispossessed this is the the bored middle class deciding that democracy life in a democracy isn't interesting enough for them and i'm on the side of anybody who argues for better policy and you know electing better people electing more responsive politicians but when your answer just comes to democracy sucks because I didn't get what I want or because other people got what they want, then you're you're really not a democratic citizen. And and those other explanations, I don't think have much power to explain very much at all.
1: That's interesting because, I mean, you've pointed out in your new book that citizens are really masters of their fate in a democracy more so than in, in any other sustained system politically. But if we think democracy has failed us, it's really us failing the test. And I'm not sure even that is that much of a surprise but the fact that many people don't care that they have failed that test and actually revel in it seems to be the the thing that gets both of us more concerned
2: yeah it's interesting that when i've said it and in the way that you've phrased it which is you know we need to be worthy of our own system of government there you know there are people who really bristle at that and they say well we're not the servants of the government and we don't you know we're, mm-hmm. we don't have to pass some kind of test to be citizens of a democratic nation, and that's that's true. That's not what I mean. I mean what John Adams meant, and I, I think it's remarkable that Americans forget this. I mean what people like John Adams and the founders said, which is our government, our form of government, was designed for a virtuous people and no other. You know, in the book, I quote James Madison when he's asked, you know, well, what about checks and balances, and which institutions are going to control this if and that if something bad happens. And at the convention to ratify the constitution in Virginia, Madison says, look, uh, my assumption is we are a virtuous people who will elect virtuous people. And then he says, if there be no virtue among us, we are in a wretched situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happening. You know, the founders knew that if we became an unvirtuous people, people who did not live civic and engaged lives and and even in our private lives, becoming a more un, unvirtuous people. You know, Sam Adams, there's another kind of memory from the founders that I used to where Samuel Adams says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, it's pretty rare that someone who can betray their country hadn't already begun by being unvirtuous in their personal relationships first. Right that it kind of bleeds over. And I think, you know, Americans get very very snippy about this and say, "No, no, you know, democracy is there to serve me and it should be worthy of me and I shouldn't have to do anything but show up and express some preferences."
1: And there is the challenge there of telling somebody effectively they're not being virtuous when they say, "Look at my life. You know, I I go to church, I treat my family well, I'm actually trying to uphold the principles of this republic and That's why I'm storming the Capitol building. They they see that as virtue.
2: Yes. They, you know, first of all, the idea that today, any imagine, imagine a president today saying what John F. Kennedy said. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That people would like overturn a car, you know, and set it on fire if a president said that today. But this notion that no, no, we are virtuous people, and yet you know, David, you began by saying, well, you know, we go to church and we're going to our families. Well, the fact is a lot of us don't, and a lot of us are very good to our families, but even the best of us, and this is the part that I found really hard to write because it's very hard to turn to someone, you know, is a good person, a friend, a neighbor. And I I wrote about this yesterday in USA Today about Mm -hmm. how hard it was to write this book and say, look, you know, I love you, but you know, if you really think that a bunch of people should storm the Capitol and you're okay with that because you think that, you know, Italian satellites are controlling Venezuelan communist voting machines, then (laughs) I I can't, you know, I can't, I can't pretend that you're not wrong. I can't nod my head and say, well, I love you anyway. No, you know, you're doing something dangerous and destructive. And I think you need to speak up and say that.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm going to warn our listeners that in your book. And certainly in our conversation, we are going to bounce around from references to the Adams clan and James Madison, to the spice quotient of Indian food, to Joseph Heller's catch 22, Emperor (laughs) Palpatine, Led Zeppelin. Uh, We'll probably hit all of these. We're going to get back to causes and some effects of this dynamic that I want to break down with you. But first, I want to jump, jump to the, the finish in a way by saying, if people are not virtuous in the public space. If people are just leaving behind the norms, traditions, and behaviors that lead to functioning democratic governance, you lay out three alternative futures and they're not good. I'm wondering if you can talk briefly about each of those, the, I believe, the proles scenario from 1984. Also the idea that technocrats just rule by default, not by any takeover. And then the rotting from within. Walk through each of those and why you see those as possible, even probable futures for us.
2: You know, this this was part of the reason I had trouble thinking about how to finish the book because I, I didn't want to end the book on anything. I, I mean, I wanted to end the book by saying, you know, shining city on a hill, we'll be yeah, fine.
1: Sure, that would be gratifying. But how yeah. do you get there when you've diagnosed this problem? It's hard to well, do. Well,
2: that's the way I've lived my whole life. I mean, you know. Despite all the hate mail I get from the right these days, I was a Republican for 33 years. I voted for Reagan twice. I, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to believe in that optimistic, can-do, Americans-can-overcome ability. And I still think that's within our power. I still think that the Americans are great people who are now in the grip, literally, of a pandemic, of a different disease. And one we can talk about in a moment, because you know it's in the book, which is the disease of narcissism. But the three futures that I kept coming back to over the long pandemic months and the, the couple of years that I was writing this, this book, one is the proles of 1984. And, and notice I, I don't go for the Winston Smith thing, right. Of, Oh, Mm -hmm. we're all going to be worshiping big brother and we're going to have our fingernails torn out and we're going to have to, you know, be torn. I don't actually think that's, that's the case. I think it's more like there will be, you know, a potential future is, That millions of people, as long as they have, you know, beer and gambling and sports and arguments and fistfights and you know kind of things to do and get married and live and work and die, that no one will pay attention to them. And people forget this part of 1984, which is really one of the scarier parts of the book. The party in 1984 points out that they don't repress the proles because they don't think they're worth repressing. Balzac the the French author had this, that these are the people that you cannot squash with your boot because they already lie too flat underfoot. Mm -hmm. And that the main government just says, you know what, here's some bread and circuses. Here's some lotteries. Here's some, you know, public activities, movies, sports, pornography, whatever it is, go have a good time and leave the rest of us alone.
1: And we have, we have case studies in history of exactly that kind of thing in a society. It's not yes. unheard of. I mean,
2: or- Orwell knew what he was writing about. And and as I say in the book, there are places in the developed West, never mind poorer countries, that you could point to this right now and say that's pretty much all it is. You know, here's some fast food, here's some petty amusements. Don't vote. Go, you know, don't bother the authorities and we won't bother you. I, I actually think this the second scenario is the one I worry about the most. And I derived it because I'm a nineteen seventies kind of guy. <laughs> I derived it from a classic 70s movie called uh, Three Days of the Condor, where I'm very worried that we become a comfortable, basically middle-class society that isn't very involved in governing ourselves because we have decided that a group of technocrats who can just get stuff for us is good enough. You know, Keep the Wi-Fi on, keep my house warm, make sure I have a nice car with a full tank of gas, and I don't really want to know about the rest of it, pretty Mm -hmm. much. And that I think is where we're already headed. I think that's right now, you know, if you're talking about kind of the poorest parts of the West, and I don't mean just America because it's a global problem, the kind of the prole scenario is already happening. There's also, I, I talk about Brave New World, where we just kind of stay dumb because we're all, you know, happy with sex and drugs and entertainment. I think that's where we are now. The question is where we're going to go ne- next. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, if the poorer classes are already kind of being treated like the proles, the middle classes are already cutting this deal of saying, hey, you know, as long as I can fly to, you know, go to Disney World on vacation and nobody bothers me, just just get it for me. And, and the final was this kind of rot from within. I said, you know, we all as democracies, we, we think very much of ancient Greece as kind of the progenitor uh, of all of our democratic systems. And I, I once read a very interesting analysis that said if the, the whole Western world wouldn't have happened if the Athenians had lost to the Persians at um, Thermopylae and Salamis, which yeah. is kind of an interesting thing to say, you know, if not for Greece, then not the rest of us. My Greek relatives love that explanation, by the way. Of course they do. But, you know, people forget that Periclean Athens is actually defeated by authoritarian Sparta at the end of that war. Mm -hmm. And Pericles never lives to see any of this horror because he dies from a plague. That gets loose in (laughs) Athens. I mean, people talk about maybe we can restore the glory that was Athens. Yes, but you have to remember, Athens collapsed from within and was eventually defeated.
1: The flip side of that, Tom, is that you're talking about these dire alternative futures. Honestly, none of those three sounds good. And yet, I think if you were a betting man, you'd bet that one of those three is more likely than any other option. But people have been predicting the demise of the American republic for a long time it's a regular feature of us right. life in every generation and my own research found voices in every generation at every pivot point in us history predicting the end of times or one step short of that the end of democratic self-governing times so what is different now
2: you know it's a it's a great question because i spend a good part of the book kind of bashing this drama queen declinism you know that oh these are the worst times ever and everything's falling apart and it's never been so bad and as you point out and I I point out in the book, you know we say this every ten years. You know I I kind of tease Bruce Springsteen in this book for he, he sings songs every ten years about his town collapsing and you think mm-hmm. geez dude where do you live <laughs> Move, you know man. that that this what that this place you live just like com, 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 melts down every ten years, but. The thing I'm more worried about is not some gigantic, dramatic collapse. I'm worried about us mutating into a kind of gray and sullen, undemocratic, middle rank power. That scares me more than collapse because you can sort of fend off the kind of notions of collapse, right? To say the United States, we're not going to break up. I shouldn't even say this because God knows it could happen, I suppose. You never know. You know, we're not going to break up into. you know, eight different countries. And we're not going to have, you know, Chinese paratroopers wading ashore in Lake Erie or something. But what we could fall into is what we were almost at the end of the 1970s, which is this kind of gray, depressed, disengaged, mildly decadent, moderately wealthy and powerful, but not particularly competent Major power, and I—I I think that's where we were headed sometime around 1977 or 1978. You know, it's important to remember that the that Margaret Thatcher's predecessor, James Callahan, once said that he thought his his job as British Prime Minister was to manage decline, right? And that Americans after 1975 said, well, you know, we had our at bat in the game; we're not coming back, and. One of the allures of Ronald Reagan, whether you love him or hate him, was that he stepped up and said, no, "No, no, that this is temporary. We can actually bounce back from this."
1: Right. Yeah, I grew up with Paul Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers dominating a lot of conversation, and it really fed into this trend that kind of hits our our pop culture routinely. You know, it's, yes. it's Isaac Asimov borrowing from Gibbon, talking about cyclical rise and decline and the virtual inevitability of stopping that cycle.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I remember, you know, being a student like you were then in those days, a little older than you, but, you know, the Paul Kennedy book, and I remember being kind of offended by the Paul Kennedy book. Sure. Because there were a lot, I mean, I don't mean personally, but, you know, kind of intellectually kind of bristling at it because it was part of a series of books, um, Robert Gilpin and... Paul Kennedy and a few others saying, you know, this is it. This is now we begin our big, long cycle Mm -hmm. of collapse. And I I don't think that's inevitable. I am a partisan for democracy. I think that that the ideals of the Declaration of Independence and particularly the notion that all human beings have inherent human rights that governments cannot grant or take away, I think that is the the ultimate natural state of a human being to Mm -hmm. want to live that way. But when we ourselves, and David, this gets back to your question about putting it on us, when we ourselves say, I don't believe in that anymore, and all I want is just for me and my family to be comfortable and screw everybody else, then maybe that becomes self-fulfilling.
1: Yeah. Let, let's break that down because you you do a good job dissecting these, these important ingredients in the decline of modern democracy. What is it that you can point to to say, this is what is happening that is not going to lead the Soviet Union to defeat the United States or is not going to lead the Japanese in the 1980s or the Chinese now, but it's going to be in a sense, some decline from within going on. The first one you point to is narcissism. Talk a little bit about the narcissism in the American public and the the Western world in general and its effects.
2: You know, it's, um, It's interesting that at first, when I started writing this, people said, oh, well, you're writing about Trump, right? Because, of course, Trump being the most um, staggeringly dysfunctional, narcissistic human being ever to achieve power in the United States. But I really wasn't. And the book really isn't about Trump or Trumpism. It's just part of a longer story that I identify, and this is based on the work of social psychologists and others who've really studied this, um, going back to the early 1970s. And it's important to remember that the landmark work on narcissistic America called The Culture of Narcissism was actually published by Christopher Lash in 1979. Wow. I mean, this is over 40 years ago. And Lash, whose book became a kind of standard on this, basically said, we are becoming a self-absorbed, childish, performative, anti-democratic culture. And, you know, Eric Hoffer, 25 years before that, had warned about the same thing when he talked about how mass movements begin and how people, when they are bored and self centered, decide that they need great crusades to go on because they, and and I'm kind of paraphrasing a bit here, but he talks about how if you take away our great crusade, you leave us only with our puny lives. And the triumph of America has always been that people, valued an ordinary and peaceful life as something wondrous in itself. Right. And and we've lost that. We now have become both, both Hoffer and Lash are right that we have become these narcissistic children who think that we have to become superheroes every day. I mean, think about our, our pop culture, David, where the top movies of the past 20 years are all superhero movies. Now, mm. I love them. I mean, I'm a big kid. Give me a bowl of popcorn and I'll go. You know, watch Tony Stark kick ass. But but if that soaks deeply enough into the culture, you lose the ability to patiently sit through a two-hour drama about human beings mm-hmm. who are more like yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you imagine audiences today sitting through even Gandhi when it came out?
2: Yeah. Well, or um, you know, to give an example of a movie, the last movie that kind of made me uncomfortable because it felt too close to home. I went to see Manchester by the Sea which Uh, mm -hmm. most people aren't even going to remember. It was a Casey Affleck movie a few years back. And it's just, it's a, it's a tragedy, a family tragedy set in here in New England. That was a great movie, but you know, it's not going to wreck the theaters the same way that Avengers part 37 is going to do. It used to be that there were more movies like that. And I I, like this, I don't want to be the old guy saying you kids, you know, movies were better in the seventies because I think we're living through a golden age of television drama in particular. But it does show something about the kind of persistent adolescence of our culture. And I actually think that does begin in the 70s. It's the post, the early boomer generation that monetizes and institutes a permanent youth culture, which is always narcissistic. I mean, adolescents by their nature are narcissistic. And Absolutely. I think we've taken that into adulthood with
1: us. So you, you you mention in the book one important aspect of this narcissism cause, which is what appears to be increasing, which is this dynamic of the narcissism of small differences. And whenever I hear that, I always think back to that Emo Phillips joke, which most people (laughs) cite against religion. But in fact, it's really about this principle of somebody finding someone at the edge of a cliff who has no reason to live. And he finds a way to bond with the person by talking about religion and then Christianity and then Protestantism. And then he keeps going down Getting finer and finer slices of denominations until at the very end there is uh, I can't remember it's like one person is a member of the Protestant Reform Baptist branch of eighteen fifteen Eastern yes. Synod, and because of one difference there he pushes him off the cliff and calls him a heretic and that's that's a horrible story, but it actually reflects so much of what we're seeing and there's a personal side to this too because it was about i don't know two and a half years ago that You and I had dinner in Washington, D.C., and instead of talking about national security, which would have made sense, we spent hours talking about Led Zeppelin and Boston and Pink Floyd and Genesis and trying to figure out what the pop culture got wrong and right about good music. And at the end, you you pronounced, which surprised me, the Treaty of Connecticut Avenue on which, you know, all of these issues had been hashed out. What I got and I presume you got, too, was a blistering number of messages from people saying, you did not agree that Boston is actually a good band, did you? I'm unfollowing you. Or wait a minute, you talked about Pink Floyd in the same conversation as Led Zeppelin. How could you? They're the greatest thing ever. And if you put Led Zeppelin in your feed again, I'm coming to get you. I was absolutely astounded at how the narcissism of small differences as reflected through Twitter led to the, the next Point you make in the book, which is about anger, that that there was this ability to lash out at almost complete strangers based on minor interpretations of 1970s music.
2: And yeah, I I the Treaty of Connecticut Avenue is still one of my greatest diplomatic uh, achievements. And um <laughs> hard fun. You know, the uh and I love that emo Phillips joke, by the way. And for listeners, that's like 35 years ago he told that joke, and it's still funny, you know? Die heretic and pushes him off. Alive. But I think part of the reason this happens, and I imagine some people listening saying, "Oh, come on, guys! People were just teasing you about, you know, Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin." No, if you've if you've done any time in the public eye, you know that people will send you ghastly mails about nothing. In the book, I talk about the great Indian food scandal, of course, where I said that I don't like Indian food and no mm-hmm. one ever could, and all that, which is a whole chapter. And of course. We got to shout out our friend, Preet Pereira, who took me to an Indian restaurant and made me eat those words almost Make something good out of it, yeah. But people literally sent me emails saying, you should die for saying this, like literally telling me that I should be, you know, like that. I mean, I, got, I literally got death threats over Indian food. And um, I think part of the reason this happens and part of the reason people are so quick to express this anger is, is not just because of the immediacy of social media, although that is a part of it. You know, the first thing I ever wrote in a newspaper was back in the eighties and I got crank mail about it, but people had to write it down and put it in an envelope and address it
1: and put a stamp on it. They had to take time to think about it.
2: Well, and even, right. And, and they were also like, well, is it really, you know, do I want to really want to say, do I want to write it down that I think you should die and put it in an envelope and have to find a stamp and go to the blah, 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 blah. But but I think now people could just lean back in their Barca lounger and say, I have thoughts and you're going to hear them right now. But that to lay it off on that is not enough. It's also because of this narcissism and boredom and anger comes from living in a society where we have a very high degree of affluence and peace and a high standard of living. And that means that people have time to think about dumb stuff that they would normally have been too busy or too tired or too consumed with other more important things to think about because they have the time to do it. There are so many statistics I could throw out that people are just not going to believe, but we actually work less today in the 21st century. Sure. To earn, you know, the amount, the, the equivalent for, you know, a loaf of bread kind of thing. We have an immense amount of leisure that actually, in some ways, takes us less time, if that makes sense. That if you things that mm-hmm. we used to have to. Devote an evening to. We're going to go bowling, right? So we got to get, have dinner and then get dressed and change and get our shoes and go to the thing and the, do this. Now people say, well, I'm going to go play, you know, a multiplayer game with a bunch of other people online and it's takes me, I, it'll take me hours, but I don't have to go anywhere. And so everything has become kind of freeze dried and made easier, including rage. Mm-hmm. And we just don't talk to, we don't spend a lot of time being socialized to each other. We say things to each other um, in that virtual environment that we would we would never want to say to, not, not just because, I don't even think it's a matter of bravery. It's because we wouldn't want to be judged as being awful people for talking like that to other human mm-hmm. beings. But because we don't see other human beings a lot, and we think it feels virtuous and good and creative and brave, to say, I, I wish you would die for your opinions about Pink Floyd, people have the leisure and the space to do it. And, it's, and, it, and it really is amazing. It's juvenile. Again, it's this persistent mm-hmm. kind of adolescence. Adults don't do this. Teenagers do it. This is like everybody has a burn book now. For
1: sure.
0: my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and enter code lawfare twenty at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare twenty, code lawfare twenty.
1: Here's what I suspect. And I don't know if we have strong evidence for this, but I suspect that in previous generations, going back, let's say the you know the 19th century, certainly time of the Civil War, but, but since then in American history that you have had the perhaps 1% fringe on either side of the political spectrum that had absolute hatred of the other side, considered them the devil incarnate, and thought that they were truly evil. But they were marginalized for, for many reasons, and we'll get into some of those later, whether it's a political system like a party system weeding them out, whether it's a lack of ability to communicate with each other in a way that social media now provides. But the real hinge point for this, for me, seems to be the late 1980s, early 1990s, because before that, you had people who could express hate of a political leader, but it was almost always couched in political or policy terms. Mm -hmm. Bush 41 was probably the last one where people may have disliked some of his policies, but except for the people who claimed that he was a lizard alien and part of a global Illuminati conspiracy, you didn't have a significant percentage of the body politic seeing him as purely evil and worthy of opposing by any means necessary. But starting with Bill Clinton, and I think with every president since, we have seen a significant chunk of the opposition who who actually sees them as so evil that anything in alternative is better. And you can find those percentages against Clinton, against George W. Bush, against Obama, certainly. And then of course, against Trump, and even now against Biden, who's about as close to a middle of the road institutionalist Democrat as you can get. But there's almost been this unleashing that happened somewhere around 1990. And of course, you and I will look at that and say, well, that's interesting. You know, that's when the perceived external threat from the Soviet Union faded. And suddenly we had the ability to see politics as either entertainment or as an expression of performative anger against anything we oppose. And I'm wondering how much. Of that really is due to that external change, or are we deluding ourselves because we're national security junkies?
2: No, I think 1990 is important for two reasons. One is that is the you know the end of the Cold War and the evaporation of the foreign threat. It's also interestingly enough, even though Bush is turned out of office for what turns out to be a minor recession, it's the beginning of a long period of economic good times. Right on, which again, you know, sort of makes people. I mean, I, I quote a guy in the book back from um an interview, because of course, every time there are these kind of rumbles, you know, the New York Times or someone sends reporters out to the heartland to say, What what are we doing wrong? What's what's wrong? What are you upset about? And um this guy actually says, you know, an an employed steel worker who's got a good job, he says, Listen, if things are so good, how come a box of cereal is four and a half bucks?
1: Right, right.
2: And I'm like, what a, what an unbelievably Kind of American thing to say, right at that moment. But I would—I'll just point out two exceptions to your presidential hatred thing, David. One is John F. Kennedy, sure, who elicited—I mean, beyond Lee Harvey Oswald—elicited irrational levels of love and hate in people. And Ronald Reagan, who you know, might the first president I voted for, and I was called—I mean, I walked, I was going to a big liberal university in America, and I was called a Nazi you know, you're a Nazi. You voted for Reagan. You're a Nazi. He's the most evil person who ever lived. And I think what both of those guys had in common is they were bigger than life personalities. And once we go into the media age, the 24-hour news cycle age, the therapeutic late boomer age, and I know everybody thinks I'm a boomer and, you know, let me just say to all those people because I'm, I'm a Jen Jones, you know, I I do not have anything in common with Bill Clinton. I was born, he was born a lot earlier than I was. But this notion that, you're not voting for a steward of the government to do things you want or don't want. You're voting for a personality. That, this, is, this begins the period of, yeah. is this the guy I want to have a beer with?
1: Yeah, Bill Clinton playing saxophone on Arsenio Hall. And right. uh, you know, th- that was something that was obviously an outgrowth of a lot of changes in American campaigning over hundreds of years. But what a significant change from those immediately before. Well, I'm talking about his underwear. Amazing.
2: And there was a moment in the 92 campaign where I got this dread in my stomach. And I'm going to give a shout out, strangely enough, to somebody that I normally cannot stand who has now passed away, who is Rush Limbaugh. Hmm. But I'll give Limbaugh credit for identifying a key moment in 1992. And it's something people should think about. There was a debate with Bush, Clinton, and again, talk about narcissistic kooks, the late Ross Perot. Right. And someone stands up, a guy kind of stands up, he's almost out of central casting, you know, his glasses, ponytail, and he says, you know, the president is like our father. And as our metaphorical father, our dad, how are you gonna look, you know, take care of us, the Americans, as your ch-? and of course Bush is sitting there going, What? You know, you can almost hear Bush's interior monologue, mm-hmm. like, what entire nation? What the hell's going on here? Well, who is this guy? You know? And Clinton, Clinton was one of the most naturally talented. Politicians of his generation, he gets off the stool he's sitting on. He gets the little bent knuckle thing going. He says, "I totally understand how you feel." And I'm yelling at the TV. I'm saying, "We're not your children. You're the Commander in Chief. We're hiring you to defend the country and to be, you know, the the chief executive, the chief magistrate of our republic for four years. You're not my dad." But that has become increasingly how we view politics. And I don't blame I don't blame Bill Clinton for it. He knew exactly what he's doing. I don't blame Rush Limbaugh for figuring it out at that moment. You know, I I just, I remember seeing it and saying, we're screwed. And this was 1992. I'm just thinking, we're just screwed. I mean, if that's how people are voting based on, you know, you're our dad. And I think that's how things have panned out. So I I think you're right, David. I think 1990 is a turning point. The threat goes away. We elect, you know, the guy who says, I totally, you know, I'm all about your feelings. I feel your pain. You know, I feel your pain. And then it becomes, and that you know, I, I look back now with nostalgia at Bill Clinton mm-hmm. because that seems like a fairly innocuous manipulation right. of people's emotions. I think after that, it just becomes just open warfare. And I think – I'll just wrap this part up by saying conservatives will blame – if you ask conservatives who started this dumpster fire mm-hmm. of you know hand-to-hand combat, they'll point to sometime around the Bork nomination mm-hmm. in 1987 where they said, okay – We get it. It's personal. It's scorched earth. It's the it's personal destruction of anybody that the left doesn't like. The left will point to the the rise of Newt Gingrich. This is a guy who doesn't care about anything but winning. He's just one of the worst human beings to ever ascend to power in the United States. And you know the sad thing is they both have a point. There's truth in those explanations, right? But I think by 1994, 95, we're we're already on the path that we're on today.
1: And I think the, one of the biggest changes from that late 80s, 1990 period to today is the fact that political leaders now find it so easy to tap into that third dynamic you identified as an ingredient in the decline of democratic norms, which is resentment. And that resentment yes. politics appears to have grabbed onto that and, and accelerated this. And of, of course, it's so easily mobilized by authoritarians. It's, it's very disturbing that resentment has become so prominent.
2: I don't want to go all political sciencey, but I even talk in the book about something, the, the French top spin that Nietzsche gives to this, which is ressentiment. It's, it's not just temporary envy. It's almost like an existential level of being pissed off at, at people that just, you don't even know why you're mad at them. You're just mad that they're them and you're you and the world is the way it is. And you're, you're just mad at everybody about everything. And that resentment has really been driven and stoked, particularly by the right in America, who have, I think, in this, I'll, I'll, I'll bash both sides for a minute. The right finally learned how to manipulate and weaponize the politics of grievance by watching the left, and have perfected it and taken it to new, you know, absolutely new heights. You know, some of my friends on the left, in in reading the book, said, "Boy, you know, but isn't this more about income inequality? You should talk more about." how much the average worker makes as opposed to you know Jeff Bezos but if you look at the data if you look at the polling and the the kind of the profiles of the voters at some point you don't understand how rich Jeff Bezos is and it's just beyond your reckoning right nobody knows what it would be like to have a trillion dollars i mean it just doesn't it's like what would you do if you had a trillion dollars well i guess i'd you know i'd buy the expensive Beer. I would, you know, get a nicer car. It's,
1: yeah, missing the. That's not here. really how
2: being a trillionaire works, you know. But what they really do, and this is the thing I find really scary and disturbing, the average American isn't mad at Jeff Bezos. They're mad at the people down the street who have granite countertops because they don't. They're mad at the people that are closer to them in income. Especially if those people closer to them happen to not look like them or speak their language. And again. Yeah. You know, Hoff recalled this 70 years ago. He said, "When you have nothing and want some, is not nearly as angry uh, and enraging as when you have some and want more." Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we are now. I, I don't. This is not poor people running the barricades at the billionaires, as much as people on the left, in particular, really want to think it's about that. That's not what's happening. This is the middle class saying. You know why do I have you know a Honda and my neighbor has a Lexus, right. and, and that's really destructive. That that will destroy us faster. I mean, look, being pissed at billionaires flying into space, which again, talk about what a juvenile culture we've become. Hmm. Hey, I have you know a hundred trillion dollars. I'm going to take a ride on a rocket instead of I don't know you know building a university or something. But they're not really as mad at those guys who they actually seem to admire as they are at, why am I watching HGTV? And this 28-year-old office worker has a 1.5 million townhouse in Toronto.
1: Sure, sure. And you point out that's not, that's not inherently new either. When you have uh, friends in the 1990s showing this apartment that these young 20-somethings are all living in, which no average New Yorker is going to be able to live in, it leads to this impression that people have it better than me. And damn it, I'm angry about it.
2: People like me have it better than me. So why not me? Right. When in fact, people like you are, are living mostly like you and the way you're living isn't so bad. That That's the other thing. It's like, no, my life is, everybody around me is having a good time and I'm busting my ass and life is tough. And, you know, we're sold that as a form of like political, political crack. There's a dopamine hit. I think one thing that's also different from 1990, I forgot to point this out, David, and I think both of us would agree. Hmm. Fox News didn't exist in 1990. True. You didn't have an entire cable network that basically – and I used to defend Fox News. I actually thought it was good to have a kind of right-leaning news network in the 90s, kind of being the alternative to what I thought was a pretty monochromatic, politically monochromatic um, news media establishment. But you now have in the 21st century a network dedicated to generating rage, that literally a network that does nothing but raise your cortisol levels. Mm-hmm with lies and craziness for four straight hours, you know, first with a big hit in the morning and then four straight hours of it in the evening.
1: Yeah, I have to think that this plays in all of these the the three dynamics of narcissism of anger and resentment. They have to be playing into what at the time that we're recording this is playing out in Afghanistan and more importantly what's playing out in the American national discussion about Afghanistan with a significant portion of people, and certainly some of the loudest ones, saying there is there is no obligation to take in any Afghans who have supported the United States war effort in some cases for years or even decades. There's no obligation to have them in our country. I don't want them in my neighborhood. Well, if it's a radio talk show host talking about not wanting them in your neighborhood, it's not as if these refugees are going to be taking your job and lowering your standard of living. There's not a rational calculation there, but it seems to be a combination of some of these factors playing out in this this horrible real world scenario right now when it comes to what to do about the Afghan refugees.
2: Because we're no longer a stoic and honorable people about this. I shouldn't say all of us, but there is now, you know, the the kind of people that are talking this way are in an earlier time in a better time i think or when we were a more adult country would say just as we did and and you know this is not the first group of people we've ever betrayed but as we did with the hmong and you know others after vietnam and trying to resettle people it's it's i think it shows that we live in a post policy world which is that people will adjust their politics to whatever is necessary to keep the rage of the day going so the same people Who would have said, you know, because they hate Obama so much, they would have said, "You can't pull out of Afghanistan. You can't just abandon our friends there and leave them hanging, you coward." Well, now that it's happened, and they're being pumped full of this nativist craziness by, you know, by by the usual suspects, are saying, "Wait a minute, I don't want all these filthy, you know, uh, Muslims uh, living near me." They will just keep changing their mind. To fit whatever keeps them angry, and you brought this, you brought this up, and I thought at the time we're recording this, we we're only a few days past the guy who created a bomb scare mm-hmm. at the Capitol, mm-hmm. and apparently his thing was part of his thing was his wife is sick, and you know God, God bless him. I hope that works out, mm-hmm. and he's upset, and he thinks because she she's having trouble with insurance, he literally believes that all of these people are going to be brought here and given healthcare for free that is going to be like taken away from his wife. That apparently that was part of his whole yeah. thing that he was going off about. And of course, people who know better and this is where the real evil comes from. I mean, this is a, this is when I start using words like evil. People on places like Fox and Talk Radio who know that's not true are nonetheless generating clicks and dollars by telling people that it's true and saying those filthy foreigners are going to come here and you know your wife is going to die because they're going to get healthcare. And of course, none of that's true. And what makes it evil is they know it's not true. And that's the other thing that I think has right. really changed since 1990 is the fluidity with which completely, with people who are just a moral black hole will just lie and say ghastly things for the sake of staying on TV and staying on the radio.
1: I think there's another related issue here that that you do address some in the book, but it's certainly relevant now, which is the fact that the military burden in our times does not demand any sacrifices or even inconveniences from the majority of the public. It's it's a subcontracting out to volunteers and there's the performative thank you for your service waving of the flag, but that's not the kind of patriotism of, let's say, the World War II generation. Why does that matter and how does that affect what we're seeing regarding the different interpretations of what's happening in Afghanistan?
2: You know, that I think, you know, you and I both have known a lot of veterans and a lot of combat veterans in our line of work and I think the American people would be surprised at how often they are a bit uncomfortable when someone says thank you for your service. As one veteran put it recently, the right answer to that is no, it was my privilege and honor to serve my country. You know, I didn't do it because I wanted your thanks, and I I think that's one of the most admirable things about our veterans, is that a lot of this civilian glorification of military service is stuff they they don't even really feel that comfortable with. But in the book, I say we're creating a kind of culture of a new Spartanism, where you know it's almost we're getting to a kind of Starship Troopers kind of thing of you know real citizens are serve in the military and volunteer and everybody else should just go about their business and and stay out of it. And that's unhealthy. That's a that's a dysfunctional civil military relationship because I think in part that's why for years we have deferred too much to military opinion about how to conduct things overseas. We accept the military's metrics. You know, we ask the military, are you succeeding? And you know, they don't lie. They say sir, by our metrics, by the metrics we've set up for ourselves, yes we're succeeding and we say well okay good enough keep it over there keep it away from us and don't ask us to serve or you know do sit-ups or pick up a rifle and i think that is really unfortunate by the way i'm sure someone's going to say did i serve i actually was about to be commissioned and i'm colorblind and i got washed out of the navy when i was 26 years old um because i can't tell red from green but um you know i think it's okay to have an all-volunteer force. I, I once knew a Marine who said, if you don't want to be in my Corps, I don't want you there. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, when we outsource it and then forget about it, I mean, all this, as I say in the book, all this thank you for your service and please wear your medals in public and here's your business class seat. Hey, you know what most veterans probably want? Better healthcare, reforming the VA, making sure that you know they can get the services and assistance they need when they come home. You know, And we kind of just assuage our guilt for not having been in the military, you know, and outsourcing all of that to volunteers by saying, well, here's a bumper sticker. And I think we have to change that.
1: But Tom, you know, those things like, you know, improved health care and better pay while they're in service that that would require an educated and engaged conversation about costs and risks. And you point out our democracy looks more like a troop of ill-tempered toddlers than it does like a Madisonian competition of factions on different aspects of governance and the role of government spending. We, we, just, we just don't have that now. And I got to say, it makes me think that some of your proposed solutions, which you've been very upfront about, that you struggled to come up with potential solutions for some of these dynamics, that it's an uphill battle. And it's a very steep uphill battle to get over some of those dynamics.
2: I point out that, you know, for all of the tinkering with laws that both the right and the left want to do, you cannot legislate virtue. You can't legislate civic mindedness. Right. You can't make people care by passing a law that's saying you ought to care about this. And I think, you know, you were talking about Afghanistan a moment ago. It's amazing how emotional and fiery people are about Afghanistan when three months earlier, they didn't have any opinions about it at all. Right. Right. And again, that's performative. That's about us, and that's not a, a reasoned discussion.
1: I got to tell you, though, I think it's even worse than that. Because at the the time of this recording, I'm in the Midwest, and I haven't been interacting with a lot of people. But the conversations that I've heard and the conversations that I've had within the past few days, um, a lot of baseball. I've heard some things about the the weather, both local and a little bit about potential hurricane bringing moisture. Not one person talking about Afghanistan. Yes, it takes over national security twitter. Yes, it is the lead headline on news channels, but for a lot of people even at this point it has not crossed over into something they particularly care about.
2: No, and it and it won't I got out on a limb. I don't usually like to make predictions because social scientists who do prediction get burned. But, you know, the the takes, the hot takes have already started about, boy, this is the end of Biden's presidency and His ratings will never recover from this. And it's a nightmare. I, I said if anybody really has strong feelings about this by Thanksgiving, I would be surprised. Sure. Because that already the other shiny things are popping up. And, you know, our our people are risking their lives. This is, and not only our people, but the people who've come home are really going through through some pretty strong emotions about this. There's a lot of veterans in this country who are, you know, worked with Afghans who Are you know glued to this coverage because they're deeply concerned about their friends and their comrades? And as you say, you know, the other 99% of the public is like, So, you know, what's on TV? What's on ESPN right now?
1: Right, right. Well, let's take our last few minutes to talk about solutions. I'm positively inclined towards your first proposed solution, which is essentially the counterintuitive argument to strengthen parties. I had a whole chapter in my second book about how parties used to remove unpopular or unfit presidents in their own primary process instead of saying we must go with the incumbent but we seem to have lost that in recent decades in America but what is in a bumper sticker fashion how do you make the point to people who are so skeptical of political parties as an elite institution anyway that they should actually exercise more control over the fringe elements of the parties
2: Yeah you know I've been I've been called out on occasion for people and I think understandably where people have said so, what your answer to this is more democracy and more elitism at the same time, and uh, my answer is more informed participation i do, I say in the in the book, you know a simple slogan of more democracy is not the answer because simply having more uninformed and highly emotional opinions crowding the space is isn't going to result in better policy or better solutions. You know parties used to serve a function of kind of educating and aggregating the public to say, you know, parties are not just flags of convenience. They're not just tribal markers. Mm -hmm. They're not just different colored hats. They actually mean something. And people, I, I point out in the book that you can go all the way back to late 50s and early 60s people like Philip Converse saying, you know, the average American just isn't that ideologically coherent, doesn't really understand what right and left really mean. Except that, you know, kind of in these broad ways. And parties used to say, look, we'll fill that in. We'll kind of give you some sense that if you are for big social programs and higher taxes to pay for them, you should probably be a Democrat. If you're for more entrepreneurial activity and lower taxes and you're willing to accept a lot of, kind of you know, more damage, human damage, well, then you're probably a Republican. If you're for a larger military with a more muscular presence overseas, you're probably a Republican. If you're for a smaller establishment, you're probably for a Democrat. And instead, we have let the the primary process become these crazy cult of personality popularity contests. And I am I point out in the book, I wasn't the one to say it. Jonathan Rauch has a great line about this. He's like, Bernie Sanders ran knowing that his plans for governing were completely ridiculous. You know, Bernie Sanders, I would have voted against Donald Trump. I mean, I would have voted for my cat. But against Donald Trump, I would have voted for Bernie Sanders. And I would have said, this is the beginning of a spectacularly failed presidency. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is how we learn. That you know, um, flaky ideas aren't going to fly. But that's become both. I know people bristle at both sides, but both parties have become silly about this. I feel like we're doing the Monty Python very silly party, you know, thing. But
1: very silly. Yeah.
2: I'm. I'm sorry, but I, in a time when we used to make fun, when Saturday Night Live could make fun of Bob Dole and Pat Robertson mm-hmm. running against each other. Mm-hmm. That seems almost quaint and statesmanlike compared to a stage with Marianne Marianne Williamson.
1: Williamson, Yeah, you you raise a point,
2: Trump, you know, people that have no business being on a stage. And and yet people say, well, but I liked her book. And, you know, he's funny. I I quote a, a voter who was interviewed about the 2016 election. And I think this really sums up this whole part of it about why the parties literally need to step in and limit. Because I I had actually argued that the Republicans should simply declare that Donald Trump has never been a Republican, doesn't believe in Republican values, Mm -hmm. is not a conservative by any definition. I mean, he was a Democrat. He was a pro-choice, you know, plutocratic New York Democrat for years, Um, but they wouldn't do it. They said, okay, if that's how we get into power, that's how we get into power. But there was a voter interviewed by the New York Times. He said, look, I admit it. I just want to see what's going to happen. He said, I I don't want politics to be boring. I just want to see people fight.
1: Yeah, it's an extension of entertainment culture rather than uh, solving problems.
2: Right. And if if the parties aren't going to step in and say, no, we're not going to do that. You know, after after that first debate, for example, they should have just said, Donald Trump, you know, you cannot come on a stage owned by the Republican Party and, Mm -hmm. you know, talk about people's wives. It's not going to happen.
1: Well, let me just briefly mention your second solution, but then move to your third for a question. Your your second solution is to, in a sense, reset public service, not bringing back the draft for military service, but perhaps ideas like six months or a year of some kind of of public service. And that, that actually has quite a bit of support in some polls and some organizations are, are moving that direction. The third one, I think, is a little more interesting. And it's oddly where, where I left my last book too, which is remember, we have a constitution that can be reformed and we don't do it lightly. And sometimes we do it in a very silly fashion, as you said, with things like prohibition, but we can reform the constitution to strengthen democratic norms, but it's inherently and frustratingly vague. And I'm wondering what ideas you've heard when you were considering this idea or since you've you've published the book, what ideas have you heard for a constitutional amendment or reform that you think would practically help the situation?
2: Well, one of the things I point out in the book, there's nothing magical about the current size of the House of Representatives.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Representatives are now representing people in, in districts the size of you know, where senators used to be. If, people, if you want to have more local control and you want to have members of Congress who actually have to answer to a smaller number of people, enlarge the House the house is the same size it was in 1913. I mean, we're a country of 335 million people now. It's
1: insane when you think about it.
2: It's ridiculous. And and there's there's nothing magical about 50 states. I am very worried, and I know this is where liberals will cheer and conservatives will boo, but I think being a good constitutionalist and small c conservative, you cannot endure a democracy where the upper house, or 70% of the seats of the upper house are going to be controlled by 30% of the people. Mm -hmm. That's just unsustainable. And, And eventually, no one is going to regard that as legitimate. Even the people that are benefiting from it are going to realize that that's crazy. Right now, the Republicans are happy about that because I think the Republican Party in America has basically given up on democracy and is dedicated to minority rule, but that cannot last forever. The realities of demography and time and public opinion are simply not going to endure that forever. So, you know, start now, start before you have to. There's no reason. I used to be against DC statehood and I, I, I think I was against it because I was simply overly solicitous of every word of the constitution, you mm-hmm. know, on even the smallest things. And the constitution can be amended to say, yeah, 700,000 people without federal representation you know, it was one thing when this was just a couple of federal buildings sitting in a big field. I don't I, I don't know when you first moved to Washington David, but the first time I set eyes on it, Washington even in the early 80s was a kind of small town.
1: It seemed that way, and of course the people there never felt that way except in those very early days when nobody wanted to be there in the first place.
2: Well, uh, you know, the Pentagon people forgot the Pentagon was supposed to be a temporary building. You know, it was it's still there, but it was meant as like temporary office space. And, um, you know, now it is a, after World War II in particular, it is a, it's a thing. It's, you know, it's three quarters of a million people. And, you know, I think we should stop pretending that our former possessions, Puerto Rico or Guam or the Virgin Islands or whatever, these are kind of hangovers from 19th century our 19th century colonial period. We can talk about more representation and you know let the chips fall i mean that's the case where i say more democracy is important will it happen i think it's going to happen sooner or later and the only thing i'm arguing for in the book is do it before you have to do it do it before it becomes a crisis and start mm-hmm. doing it it's like when people tell you your house is going to, you know, I'm sure everybody listening to this experience, right? Uh, you know, uh, you're going to need to replace your roof. And you go, yeah, I don't know, next year, you know, I'll fix that next year. <laughs> that, and then boom, you yeah. know, suddenly the roof is leaking and you're like, you know, should have done it a year ago.
1: Absolutely. We're going to have to leave it there, but I anticipated a wide-ranging conversation and we had it. Tom, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, David. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. We thank Hamza Shatou for being the audio engineer, Jen Howell for producing and editing this podcast. We also thank all of you for doing your part to publicize the podcast and let people know about the episodes you find interesting or the overall podcast if you find it more useful than not most of the time. And of course, we continue to thank Sophia Yan for providing our music. As always, thanks for listening.